everybody, and welcome to the next episode of Infection Control Matters. Phil Russo here, and uh, today I'm joined by Brett Mitchell. Hi, Brett. Good day, Phil. Good to see you again. Uh, talking about something that we both enjoy dabbling in every now and then, Brett, and that's social media. And we came across an article, or you came across an article that was in preprint after peer review in Journal of Hospital Infection titled YouTube and 2022 Monkeypox Outbreak, Opportunities for Awareness and Infection Control. Mm. So tell us about this article. Yeah, it was interesting. I guess maybe by the time this um, podcast comes out, Monkeypox might well be renamed to something else, but um, we'll run with it for now. Um, yeah, I guess this this is interesting. And we've, we've talked in previous podcasts a little bit about um, things like gaming and touched on social media a little bit in the context of infection prevention and control. But I think this sort of article hits home on a number of fronts, particularly some of the challenges we've probably faced with, with COVID-19 as well. And so, you know, this article is focused on, on YouTube. And, you know, YouTube is, of course, predominantly video content. But the authors are interested to, to look at incorrect or misleading information that was being put out on YouTube with respect to monkeypox um, being quite topical, of course, at the moment. So they did a search on one day and they just simply looked at the 100 most viewed videos when you typed in monkeypox into, into YouTube, you know, the search on YouTube. And they filtered that by most, by most viewed. And they, they look at the top 100 of those. And then they got two reviewers to look at those videos and classify them as either useful, misleading, or neither. And they used publications and guidelines from the CDC and WHO as their sort of reference point for, I guess, whether those information that's provided in those um, videos was, in fact, misleading. They also categorised the content into different areas like epidemiology and symptoms and treatment and various other things. So, Phil, one interesting thing was that these videos, the, the first 100 videos at least uh, that they found, 100 most popular, they were viewed 23 million times. Now, we haven't quite got that just yet from our podcast here, Phil, but uh, <laughs> maybe, one, maybe one day. That's an extortionately large number of, um, of views, isn't it? It is indeed. It is indeed. I just guess uh, just show how popular. I mean, I, I suppose people are just typing in monkeypox search yeah, and um, that the YouTube video comes up. And, you know, that was the first thing that struck me about this article because it made me think, you know, wow, that's where people are going to get sources of information from and mm. do exactly as you probably just described. And what are we doing in our space, public health, infection prevention control, to communicate um, on these types of platforms? So anyway, that's that's probably another point for, for a bit later. But anyway, of, the, of those hundred odd videos, um, they they had to remove quite a few because they were non-English speaking. So they end up with 67. Um, now, of those 67 videos that they reviewed, they found two thirds were useful and about 20% were misleading and about 10% were neither useful nor misleading. So, you know, that's not an insignificant number or 20 odd percent of videos being misleading. And bear in mind that these have been watched 23 million times. 
Did they also look at the sources, Brett, of the um, of the videos and who produced them, or who yeah. uh, presumably somebody was presenting information in those videos? Yeah, that's right. They did actually, and and they found that videos that were uploaded by healthcare professionals or public health individuals were all classified as useful, uh, and that independent users were more likely to post misleading videos than useful videos. It was something like two-thirds versus 10% um, in terms of misleading versus useful for independent users. And, so yeah. an independent user is just some you or me just putting up a, our own YouTube video. Is that, yes, well, if we're not a healthcare professional, yeah. So yeah, if, we're, yeah, if yeah. we're just a, a member of the public, I guess. Um. So I found that, that yeah that 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 was interesting. So I guess that's one good thing that healthcare professionals and those with expertise are putting up useful videos. That's that's great. Um, but a lot of misinformation was coming from um, non-healthcare, non-public health individuals. But the other interesting thing was misleading videos had a higher number of likes compared to useful videos, and statistically significant difference. So people were liking these misleading videos even more. So, so yeah. Was that a number of views or I, I must admit I'm not that okay with YouTube. So you, <laughs> you like, it, like it or yeah, you can you like, like it. it or you dislike it. Yeah. Okay. So it's not just watching it or downloading it. It's also liking and disliking. Oh, uh, that's a good question. I don't know if there's a dislike um, that we, right. um, function okay. to that. So whether the like is comparable to people who didn't respond to either liking it or or not mm -hmm. responding to that. But um, yeah, that's, it's, fascinating. it's fascinating because it just shows how conspiracies and misinformation could spread, both because the, the large number of videos that are being consumed and put online and number of views, but also that people seem to be liking the ones that are mis misleading. Um, was that, so I was just going to say, was there any particular content areas that, that um, they were more misleading? Like did they were they more misleading about modes of transmission? or, um, you know, the symptoms, or was there anything that those, um, you know, um, was there any sort of comparison well, there? Was, there? there was, I guess, that those misleading videos, the majority presented messages of conspiracy theories about a fake outbreak created by international companies to sell vaccines. And there were some other conspiracy-related thoughts there too. So I guess that's... Perhaps one thing people like a good conspiracy, and uh, <laughs> more perhaps more likely to to watch it and comment on it. And um, I guess there's for me there's a few things that also came from this, and and that is that this is a platform that perhaps we could utilise better in infection prevention control to increase awareness of things like transmission and prevention methods, particularly in the community setting, and that the risk of misleading information is really serious on some of these platforms. And, you know, and and because of the latent nature of the content, that this is likely to, to continue. So, you know, some of the misinformation that's put on there, and if it's not removed, the more, review, more views it gets, the more likely it is to be potentially watched again by more people. So, you know, it kind of comes out as that compounding effect um, as well. So I can see some some real challenges with this. Yeah, I, it's interesting that the um, the authors have also done similar reviews on um, 
videos on hand hygiene on YouTube and also on uh, on yellow fever. Uh, and mm. another group have done a similar similar search on um, misinformation on COVID nineteen vaccination. Mm. Mm. So it's certainly something that needs to be watched and observed. Uh, yeah, because, yeah. I guess the quick yeah. question is then: what's the implications from this? What, 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 you know, so what? I mean, interesting piece of work, mind you. But um, so I think there's an opportunity for us to do, to perhaps use these platforms better. I think it's probably an opportunity for us to be commenting about how quickly some misinformation on these open source platforms can be taken down and the responsibility of companies to, and where that sits with respect to to spreading of misinformation, I think that's not something we're ever going to be able to answer. Much um, more qualified people than us to be uh, commenting on things like that, but I think it does really open up the need for that discussion. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it just um, lends itself to the whole area of fake news, essentially, doesn't mm. it? That's that's on this platform and many other social media platforms as well, and who. Who's responsible for it at the end of the day? Mm. Uh, well, hopefully we're not spreading too much um, fake news on this podcast, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that's what caught my eye, and hopefully we'll uh, see a bit more. I think there's a lot more opportunity to, to explore this sort of concept of social media and communication for infection prevention control, and it might spur on others to, to think about what they can do in this space as well. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the issue of uh, communication, infection prevention control is, um, you know, it's important making sure that the message is correct, making sure that they're tailored for the correct audience. As yeah, well. don't so, share things if there's misinformation. That's right. Um, there's lots of that that goes on. I see, we see it on Twitter too, don't we? We see things where people retweet an article without reading it, not really mm -hmm. perhaps in realizing what the implications of some of that might be. Yes. Um, and and that you know the way these things work is that the more things get retweeted, the more it gets shared and viewed by other people. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a real opportunity to make sure we all don't do that in all the different social media platforms that yes. we might use. Mm. All right, Phil, great chatting to you again. Good to see you too, Brett, and uh, thanks for uh, sharing that article with us. That's it for this episode of Infection Control Matters. Uh, stay tuned; the next one won't be too far away. We'll see you later.